Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we begin, this episode contains references to child sexual abuse. I'm David Marr and this is The Reckoning. The High Court in Canberra is closed due to coronavirus, meaning it will be moved here to Brisbane. And only the High Court will either hold the verdict, quash it, possibly order a retrial. In a decision watched around the world, the High Court has unanimously acquitted George Pell. Inside the court, it says to me, appeal allowed, convictions quashed. Huge news, appeal uh, allowed and those convictions quashed means that George Pell will soon walk free from Bowen Prison behind... The Cardinal is now a free man. And what was the reaction? Well, there wasn't um, much, much there simply because of the social distancing rules. Now, we didn't see any... I'm talking today about that long process and this remarkable judgment with Laura Murphy-Oates, the presenter of Full Story, and Melissa Davey, my colleague, who has been there reporting the Pell trials every step of the way. We're not entirely sure if it is George Pell at this stage but there is some movement here. I can see a white car coming down the driveway. Do we know where he's going? No, we don't. OK, guys, you have both been covering this for such a long time. You know, you've been in the court, you've spoken to those most closely affected. What is your reaction to this decision? What was your reaction when you heard? I just had no idea which way it would go. So to me, it was just so impossible to call that um, I wasn't surprised, put it that way. This is such a complex case. And trying to preempt a decision from the High Court is a fool's game. I was surprised by the unanimity of it. Now, you know, I wrote a few weeks ago that we were probably heading towards an acquittal, but I was very surprised that it was a unanimous acquittal. It's a powerful statement from the court, a powerful criticism of the prosecution process and an absolutely decisive victory for Pell. What was the evidence that was relied upon to convict Pell in the first place? What did we hear? Well, the evidence that was relied on was simply and only the evidence of Pell's accuser. And that accuser, as I've said, was was obviously a compelling witness. Now, one of the One of the peculiarities of this case is that we have not only not seen Pell's accuser in the witness box, because that part of the hearing was held in camera, but we haven't even read all of his evidence. 
The only evidence of the accuser that the public has seen are those bits that have been quoted by the appeals courts in their judgments. A process which is designed to protect accusers, to encourage them to come forward, to save them from the grotesque embarrassment of speaking about abuse in a public court, at the same time means that at the core of this case is for the public an unknown. And that is why this witness was found so compelling by so many people all the way up, but not to the High Court. That was the evidence against Pell. There was a variety of evidence that the defence said proved that it was impossible for Pell to have offended. And one of the key witnesses that was called to support that was the Master of Ceremonies at the time, Charles Portelli. And the argument from the defence was that Portelli was always with Pell at the cathedral. He was never left alone. He was accompanied when putting on his robes, when taking them off, and it was impossible for the offending to have happened for that reason and for other reasons as well. They said that the opportunity just wasn't there, that the cathedral was too crowded, that the timing didn't add up, that there just wouldn't have been enough time for Pell to be on his own to get to the priest's sacristy to offend completely unnoticed. Portelli was really the key witness that added weight to that argument, but there were others as well, former altar servers and the sacristan who said that the pre-sacristy was always really busy. It was a hive of activity after mass. People would have been coming and going, putting things away, that kind of thing. And so again, it points to this whole argument that the opportunity to offend just was not there. In a way, you can boil it down to this. If you believed Portelli, you could not believe Pell's accuser. The master of ceremonies... Um, who is a, a, an old friend of, of Pell's and um, Pell has employed him in Rome to decorate the chapel of the Domus Australia in Rome, that Portelli said that he had an actual memory of Pell standing on the steps of the cathedral to farewell the faithful that day, an actual memory. There were two possible occasions on which the offence might have occurred, each in December 1996, and Portelli said he remembered each occasion and Pell was on the steps. He could not have been in the sacristy abusing boys. Now, if you believe Portelli, you can't believe the accusation against Pell. Clearly, the jury didn't believe Portelli. Okay, so... In the original conviction in 2018, the jury believed the accuser over this other witness, Portelli, over everything else. Obviously, we've had a very different outcome today. Just to start with, can you talk me through the main points of the decision from the High Court? The full bench of the High Court, all seven justices, have quashed Cardinal George Pell's convictions unanimously. They found that Although the jury had found the complainant's evidence to be credible and reliable, that other evidence should have called into question the strength of the case and that a jury acting rationally should have entertained a reasonable doubt. Because of that, there was a significant possibility that an innocent person, Pell, had been convicted. That's what the court found. And as a result, Pell was released from jail. 
This is a judgment about doubt and about the role in criminal prosecution of reasonable doubt and the right of appeal courts, appeal courts, to decide whether or not juries have in fact held on to the doubts they should have had about a case. And the doubt here arises because while the police, the prosecution authorities in Victoria, the jury at his trial, the Court of Appeal in Victoria all found that Pell's accuser was a compelling witness to the events he described, essentially oral rape in the sacristy of St. Patrick's Cathedral. But the High Court looked in extraordinary detail at the evidence that was given by church officials, by former choir boys, by organists, sacristans, all of these people, that said Pell just didn't have the opportunity to commit this crime at that time And they concluded that that evidence meant that doubt had to be there about Pell's guilt, and therefore they decided unanimously to acquit him, to release him. Can you break that down for us a little bit? You know, Pell did already seek an appeal unsuccessfully last year that was heard in the Criminal Court of Appeal. This was in the High Court. What played out? differently this time that led to such a different result? I find it really interesting that every court who heard the victim give evidence convicted Pell. The first court who didn't, the High Court, acquitted him because they believe that the best way to test witness evidence is to look at the words that were said and compare it to the objective facts. And What we saw in the Court of Appeal in Victoria was that they watched the video. They watched the video of the complainant give evidence. They saw his demeanour. And the High Court's view is that that demeanour shouldn't detract from the inherent value of what was said. There was a whole debate in the High Court hearing over two days about whether watching the video, the appellate court in Victoria had actually put too much weight on the victim's reliability. This court believes that video evidence can cause a court to give too much weight to that. So this is one of those occasions on which the High Court makes a decision, not on the basis of any great legal principle or any disputed doctrines of the law, but by going through the evidence itself. And that's what the judgment does. It goes through the evidence itself. It believes Portelli. And crucially, time after time, through that judgment, is the word unchallenged. And the High Court is very critical of the prosecution for not challenging Portelli and the other defence witnesses sufficiently when they were in the witness box. The the prosecution may have found weaknesses in their evidence, but the cross-prosecution didn't break them. Okay, so the High Court put more faith in the evidence and the witnesses that support Pell's version of events. What did they say about the evidence from Pell's accuser? They don't accuse um, Pell's accuser 
of being a liar or a fantasist. Um, what they do, which, by the way, is exactly what Pell's lawyers invited them to do, what they did was to say, look, even if you find this man compelling, even so, you have to look at the evidence for Pell's defence and when you compound all the improbabilities, then really a jury acting reasonably had to have reasonable doubts and, and that there was no ground that the High Court can discover for the jury putting aside those doubts and the jury ought to have acquitted. That's, that is the argument of, of the court, of the High Court. In other words, it's not enough that they found the witness believable, compelling, credible. That's not enough. The other evidence from other witnesses should have called his account into question. That's what they found. As a matter of principle, you can't argue with the argument. It's just a matter of the weight that you give to this evidence. And clearly the jury looked at those defence witnesses, looked at the people that Pell's legal team had brought into the court um, to defend the Cardinal. The jury looked at those witnesses and were not absolutely convinced by them. The High Court is. It's interesting because all throughout the trial, the jurors are told it is up to you what you decide are compelling witnesses. It's up to you to decide who you believe, essentially. There are undisputed facts that are put to the jurors that they are not allowed to discredit. For example, the fact that Pell was inaugurated as Archbishop on a certain date. They're undisputed facts. But the jurors are told it's up to them who they find to be a compelling and believable witness. I think that there must surely be judges at the very upper echelons really questioning this decision and what it means for jury trials, what it means for the the power of a jury. How unusual is this, that a jury's decision is overturned in a case like this? It's not unusual. It happens frequently. I mean, that's what appeals courts are for. There has always been a tension between the role of the jury and the role of appeals courts. What makes it really new at the moment is that with the videotaping of evidence, it's actually possible for appeals courts to kind of be in the room with the jury when the evidence is first given. So that the old doctrine of, you know, what was it about being a juror, about being there, about being at the trial that might have explained the decision they came to, that old doctrine is being crushed by the capacity of appeals courts to actually see what the jury saw. And the High Court is clearly uncomfortable with this. The High Court is clearly hankering for the old days when all that appeals courts ever had to go on were the bare words of a transcript. And there's tension there, tension which is not yet properly resolved between the old and the new, in assessing what was so special about jury experience that, that, that allowed them to come to their decision. What could this mean for historic sexual assault cases, which we do know in a lot of cases come down to two competing accounts? What kind of repercussions could this have? Word-on-word -word cases aren't unusual in sexual assault matters, so the case 
cases where it's the word of one person against another. But I think that it'll be a hard day for victims who will wonder whether it's worth it to go through this process. If you can get a jury to unanimously convict and still it's not, it's not enough. I mean, why would you do it? If you were a victim, why would you do it? Why would you put yourself through this? I mean, almost, almost nobody comes forward to police with accusations of rape or, you know, child molestation or, child, you know, being abused as a child. Hardly anybody goes to the police because of the prospect of, of what it involves, what it does to their lives. And this outcome, this outcome, regardless of Pell's guilt or innocence here, I'm, and I, but, but just to look at this outcome... Why would you do it? Um, extraordinary. Extraordinary. Cut it down and that's, that's a, I hope, a, a simple way of explaining it. Yeah, OK. And now, Colonel George Pell has just issued a statement. I'll read through this. He says, I have consistently maintained my innocence while suffering from a serious injustice... He says this has been remedied today with the High Court's unanimous decision. I look forward to reading the judgment and reasons for the decision in detail. I hold no ill will toward my accuser. I do not want my acquittal to add to the hurt and bitterness so many feel. There is certainly hurt and bitterness enough. However, my trial was not a referendum on the Catholic Church, nor a referendum on how church authorities in Australia dealt with the crime of pedophilia in the church. The point was whether I had committed these awful crimes, and I did not. He goes on to say the only basis for long-term healing is truth, And the only basis for justice is truth, because justice means truth for all. A special thanks for all the prayers and thousands of letters of support. I want to thank in particular my family for their love and support and what they had to go through. My small team of advisers, those who spoke up for me and suffered as a result and all my friends and supporters here and overseas. Cardinal Pell goes on to say, also my deepest thanks and gratitude to my entire legal team for their unwavering resolve to see justice prevail, to throw light on manufactured obscurity and to reveal the truth. Finally, I'm aware of the current health Have we heard anything from the accusers, from their families? So one of them is dead. Um, Only one, there was only one accuser in this case. And he, I suppose, spoke for himself and the other victim who died of an accidental overdose in 2014 when he was in his 30s. Now, the victim who brought this case against Pell has been very clear that he wouldn't be making comment. So he hasn't said anything through his lawyer at this stage. But the father of the other boy that was 
alleged to have been abused, has come forward. And he said he is in shock at the decision. A lawyer representing him, Lisa Flynn, said that he's struggling to comprehend the decision and he no longer has faith in the country's criminal justice system. He's furious that the man he believes is responsible for sexually abusing his son and who was convicted by a jury has now had that decision overturned. He said that he's heartbroken for the surviving victim who stuck his neck out by coming forward to tell his story but was ultimately let down by a legal process that forced him to relive his pain and trauma for no benefit. Have we heard much from any supporters of Pell? Former Prime Minister Tony Abbott, who wrote a character reference for Pell before sentencing, he came out this morning and said that... Look, uh, I really wouldn't want to say anything other than just uh, let the judgement speak for itself. You've been a strong supporter, though, Cardinal Pell, haven't you? Look, uh, that's... uh, as it's been uh, and as it will be. But as I said, uh, today is just a day uh, to let the High Court judgment speak for itself. Do you think it's a correct decision? News Corp columnist Andrew Bolt, who has been one of Pell's most prominent defenders, has written a blog post saying that the jailing of Pell was one of the greatest miscarriages of justice in this country. Um, And various archbishops have come out too to support Pell. The Archbishop of Sydney, Anthony Fisher, said that Pell has always maintained his innocence and he said he's pleased that the Cardinal will now be released and he asked that the pursuit of Pell that brought us to this point now stops. The pursuit? Does he mean the reporting of allegations, the reporting of trials? Is that a pursuit? I think it is in his book, isn't it? I presume so, David. I think that's exactly what he means. Yes, for victims to complain about figures in the church is a pursuit. Um, Yes, we have to keep in mind the language of the church here. There are many, many people in Australia, not least Catholics, who find Pell a very distasteful figure. But that doesn't mean a person should stay in jail if a conviction is unsafe. If the conviction is unsafe, he must be released. There are still ongoing legal issues. What will we hear next uh, in this story? Where to next for George Pell and the Catholic Church? Well, one of the, the huge issues is the release of the Child Sexual Abuse Royal Commission full report, uh, including its findings about Cardinal George Pell. So although that report was published at the end of the Commission's work in December 2017, there are massive chunks that are just blacked out. They're completely redacted. And that's because the Royal Commission didn't want to jeopardise the legal action. Now, that legal action is over, and so there are calls for that redacted report to be released. And this report will go into what George Pell did or didn't know about abuse occurring when he was in very prominent positions in Victoria, in the church. And there was a bit of back and forth yesterday about who's ultimately responsible for releasing this report. The Office of Public Prosecutions in Victoria said that it's a matter for the Federal Attorney General. The Federal Attorney General, Christian Porter, said that actually it's a matter for Victoria. There is an issue about whether or not a further um, tabling can occur of Uh, the Royal Commission documents, which does not contain the redacting that it has done to date. That is possible. My view is that where possible, that should occur. 
it does require some liaison between uh, my office and Victorian authorities, investigative and prosecutorial, to make sure that further tabling with less redaction would not prejudice any future investigations of a number of types. Uh, that could take a number of weeks, but my strong preference is to have uh, as much of the information that has been redacted tabled with less redaction, but that is a process that I have to engage in with the Victorian authorities. It's now come out that there'll be discussions between both about whether the report should be released. Now, Porter has said it should be. There are just a few things they need to get in place first. So we could expect that report out at any moment, really, and it should be released. It is a report that is in the public interest. The rest of the Royal Commission's findings have been made public. This is the only part of that extensive report that still remains under wraps. What do we expect we might find in this report? What are people most concerned about? Well, the report goes into Pell's conduct, firstly, as a priest in the Ballarat Diocese. And as a priest in the Ballarat Diocese, he sat on a committee which shoved the appalling, the appalling pedophile Father Gerald Ridsdale from parish to parish to parish. Now, Pell was certainly a party to one of those moves. And when quizzed about it at the Royal Commission, he said that he was unaware the reasons for the move. Well, really, George Pell hasn't got very far in the Catholic Church without knowing exactly what is going on all the time. And the Royal Commission found that that committee of priests did in fact know the reasons for Ridsdale being moved because he was abusing and raping and um, assaulting children. And then as a junior bishop in Melbourne, there were scandals um, and terrible situations which he was left to deal with. And, and it's pretty certain that the Royal Commission is going to be highly critical of his failings there before he became Archbishop in full of Melbourne. So there's a lot of material there. It's been canvassed for years and um, there seems to me to be no reason whatever for delaying its immediate release. Exactly. It boils down to what did he know and if he did know, what did he do or what did he fail to do to stop the abuse of children? Okay, so we're still waiting for this report from the Royal Commission that will shed light on Pell and what he may have known about others in the church who were offending. Are there any other legal issues hanging over Pell? There are several civil lawsuits that I'm aware of underway. We don't know too much about them at this stage because there has been this legal action, the, the High Court case, and then before that the appeal in the Supreme Court. So... I think we'll find out a lot more about these civil cases in the coming weeks. Now, these are not criminal cases. Um, you know, Pell can't face criminal charges over over this. This is people um, making civil claims against Pell and the church for his actions. Mm. So Pell has walked free from prison today, but it's likely or possible that we will see him in court in the future. Yes, but not sitting in a dock. He'll be... He'll be sitting at the bar table with his lawyers. Okay, so as of yesterday, Pell is a free man. He's out in the world. Do we have any idea what his life is going to be like going forward? Pell is no longer the um, treasurer of the Vatican. Um, that's that's gone. You know, he's resigned that post. Um, he's an old man now. 
He remains a priest. He remains a cardinal. Where he chooses to live ultimately will be his decision. Um, it's always open to the church to give him one of its sort of distinguished emeritus postings um, to a basilica somewhere or some such task, some such responsibility. I think all eyes will be on the Vatican for their response. They've been very careful all along not to weigh in. And there's also the question, will Pell want to go back to the Vatican? Will they accept him back? There are two institutions in this world that are very hard to guess. One is the High Court of Australia and the other is the Vatican. So, time will tell. That's it for today. If this episode has raised any issues for you, there is help available. For 24-hour crisis support, you can call 1-800-RESPECT or call Lifeline on 131114. The Blue Knot Foundation also has specialist trauma counsellors available 9 to 5, Monday to Sunday on 1300 657 380. Thanks to Melissa Davey and David Ma for their time. You can read their reporting on Pell at theguardian.com. This episode was produced by Ellen Lee Beater, Ryan Pemberton and Joe Koning. Our executive producers are Miles Martignoni and Gabrielle Jackson. If you liked this episode, don't forget to leave a rating or a review. Thank you for listening to The Reckoning, perhaps the final reckoning. Follow Laura Murphy-Oates on The Full Story which you can find wherever you find your favourite podcasts.